welcome back for another episode of The Game Agenda, a podcast where four gay guys bring board games out of the closet and onto the table. My name's Matt. And I'm Kevin. I'm Larry. I'm Nick. And today we are going to bring you a review of The Oracle of Delphi, a new game by TMG. Uh, And we are later going to talk about the pros of cons uh, for people who are interested in conventions. Uh, But before we get to that, let's talk about what games we've been playing this week. So, Larry, what have you been playing? Well, um, can I talk instead about what I'm excited or waiting to play? I don't know. What do we think? Are we going to allow this? I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Modify the agenda. He's just addendum. I'm just going to do it. Throwing the agenda out the window. (laughs) So, I just got noticed that Wave 2 of Kingdom Death Monster is shipping. And I am super, super excited for it, you guys. Because... It's going to have all kinds of expansions, and it's going to just be amazing. So I haven't even yet finished my first kind of Kingdom Death Monster campaign, but I'm crazy excited to see all the additional new miniatures and the new rules and just enjoy this universe. This so. is the one where um, this is the one where you have like you're facing off against monsters who are attacking your yes. village or some yes. thing. I still a village feels, is even too feel like, like I still big a word for it. Settlement. Settlement. Settlement, Settlement sounds better because it's like it feels like people have just like carved out a little space in some mud in a cave. Is it kind of cave. like a tower defense game? No, no. It's 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 a miniature battle game. It's okay. you you you're four guys fighting a monster and you, you kind of that roll to attack him and roll to defend okay. and that sort of thing. It's but just brutal. It's really brutal. But the best part, though, is the miniatures. And my friend Rosando has painted all my miniatures so far. Oh, my God. They're so beautiful. They're so... Did you see the phoenix he did? So the, one of the big monsters that you fight in Kingdom of Death Monster is this phoenix. And that's kind of one of the higher-end oh. monsters that you kind of work your way to. And it's a big figure. And he's painted this thing. It's purple and red and orange. It's just... Oh, it's stunning. We should put some photos of it up on um, uh, Instagram no, yeah, or something. Yeah, Instagram yes, or... Sure. Uh, we can put it on all Twitter and yeah. Instagram. Let's do I that. actually haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. Okay, we mental will, note. We will, we do, will do this. Mental note. Kingdom Death Monster and uh, miniatures on parade. So some of the other things that are coming out is like this giant spider and then like this kind of like tree and like dudes in like armor and stuff. And so once I get him, he's going to put them all together and paint them and it's going to be amazing and folks should totally reach out for him and ask him to paint their stuff because I bet he would do it because yeah, it's so amazing. So this is one of those crazy games of like all gray miniatures. Like there's a ton of them but they're all gray. Yeah, Rosandra does great work. He's a friend of mine too and he, he paint, he's a beautiful artist. He's a one. Oh my God, stunning. I want to have him also do my Rising Sun stuff but I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask him for too much. <laughs> How many minis are in Kingdom Death Monster in the new thing? Oh my God. Um, in the new one? I don't know. I've not gotten it yet but there's I believe seven expansions. Um, and I think that each expansion only has like two or three additional miniatures oh. in it. It was just crazy at Gen Con alone. It's I remember them only like, having, like 30 miniatures. Oh. It was cases and cases of <laughs> miniatures they were showing at Gen Con. It was insane. They were, and they're super, super like detailed miniatures. So anyway, hmm. that's what I'm excited for. I'm super thrilled. I uh, can't wait for it to get here. And apparently there was some problems with the first wave. Like Asia didn't get uh, the first wave kind of timely. Mm-hmm. So they're guaranteed that they're going to get wave two first. And then kind of everybody else is going to get oh, wave two. <laughs> so, which fair. is fair. I totally, I'm totally on yeah, board with that's it. Nice. But I'm just like now waiting on pins and needles saying, okay, when's it going to get here? When's it going to get here? When's it going to get here? I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait. How about you, can, Nick? Can, can you wait? No, I cannot wait. <laughs> he can't even. <laughs> So I have been playing uh, even fewer games than usual. I almost haven't even played Terraforming Mars, but that's because I have tournaments kind of back-to-back-to-back in 
Phoenix, then Los Angeles, then Seattle. So I'm traveling for two pro of these. Pro player. No, I'm not a pro, but I would like to be. <laughs> so I've got a. I have basically, if I am not playing Wait, for Magic, a, not Terraforming Mars. For for Magic, yes. yes. Okay, just he's clarify. He is a pro traveling. player at Terraforming I know, Mars. I know. You're not traveling here's, for any tournaments. Here's how player. bad it is. I've played one game of Terraforming Mars in like the last week and a half. Ooh. That's I don't I don't even know who I am Ooh. anymore. The good news is, is when the app comes out, which I hear should be relatively soon. This year, you will get to play it while traveling to these other conventions. I will play it nonstop. I will never need to even see other people. It'll be great. What uh, what, <laughs> what formats do you play in, with uh, Magic? So I play Modern and Standard mostly. Um, so the tournaments Ooh. coming up are Modern, then a Team Trios, where it's actually three of you, and one play, person plays Standard, one plays Modern, one plays Legacy, and you can call all kind of like You're talk to each other. You're just saying words. Yes, Gibberish. So Magic is a giant... There's like tons of ways to play magic which basically mm-hmm. determines which cards you can have and whether you're playing with new cards you open or build your own deck and there's so, all sorts of different rules around a, the format a, a good way to sum it up would be standard is about two years of play so it's kind of think of it as small modern is about half of the game's length so it's about medium and legacy is pretty much all of magic so that's large are there people you travel with for this you're talking about going to these different places do you have yeah other players? so it's just me and one other person for um for Phoenix, the Team Trios thing is is local, so it'll just be two of my um, really good friends that I play a ton of Terraforming Mars with that are doing that. And then to Seattle, I'm going by myself, but I'm staying with a ton of people I know from around. Um, I'm staying with a friend of mine who works for Wizards, and then I'm seeing a ton of people who are going to Seattle for that tournament. So even though it's only me flying up there, I will basically never be alone. <laughs> so That's good. Well, Kevin, what have you been playing? Okay, so Larry is also involved in this one, so he's <laughs> going to have to help me recount our adventures playing the Virgin Queen, which is probably the most... Doesn't that sound thrilling? It's, no, <laughs> this was the most epic um, commitment I've ever had to do. Like, and I've played Twilight Imperium, and I've played, you know... This long, game makes Twilight Legacy Imperium games. look like Uno. Oh, yeah, there's nothing. only seven <laughs> rounds, and we only got, I think, to turn four before four. the game ended. I think we were at four or five. And that was like yeah. 12 hours. <laughs> it was 12, yeah. So this was a 12-hour game for four rounds. Um, it was something we had booked two days with, just in case, mm-hmm. but we did decide to just barrel on through and play it all in one day for 12 hours. It's um, There was, how many of us? Six? Were there total? Six, yeah. There's six of us total. So it takes place during the Protestant Reformation? Yeah, like right around that so, period of so time. So everybody plays one of the kind of key powers in that time and or the Protestants. And everybody <laughs> has kind of um, various ways to score victory points. And you engage in political negotiations and troop movement on the board. Well, so that's the thing. There's numerous like phases to one round. And so one part of it is just a diplomacy phase, mm-hmm. which could be 20 minutes of people going to talk. Where you for try a while. and get people married off to each other or oh, you, you like marrying mercenaries. Yeah, your royalties. Yeah. yeah, or how do you like, who are you going to go to war with? Who are you going to become an ally to? It's, and you don't know, like you go in order then around the table once everybody sits down again and it starts with the Ottoman Empire, then it goes to Spain, then England, then France, then the Holy Roman Empire, and then the Protestants. And so basically the Protestants going last will hear what everybody else offers because until somebody agrees, uh, okay. it's not a real thing. So the poor Ottomans have to kind of go out on a limb and say, uh, I'm going to say we're going to ally with so-and-so, and I'm going <laughs> to give you this. And so that has to pay off the whole diplomacy that's been going on for 20 minutes. You have that mm-hmm. one moment in that round. And then the board stuff starts to happen, and that's when things take effect. People start moving. There can be some battles, but it's not really just a battle game. It's not. I mean, most of the game is, if you've ever played like uh, Twilight Struggle, 
um, it's mostly done through card play. So the cards have events on them that can get triggered uh, or they can be used for points that trigger actions. I like see. you can spend one point to move troops or two points to build troops, that sort of thing. And so, it's totally asymmetrical, right? Don't the, each, each, oh, each, totally. each person has a total, like a different win different condition, Different win right? conditions, different starting powers, and... different abilities. Like Spain, which is who I played, towards the later part of the game, they could win if they do this gunpowder revolt and like kill the queen of England, you know, the Virgin queen, <laughs> which you couldn't do. No, I couldn't you do tried it. many times. I did. I tried three but the times. Virgin queen lived. <laughs> uh, they also have like uh, treasure fleets that they're responsible for protecting. And everybody else is like trying to steal their treasure. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you have a little bit of the map. It's mostly Europe and, and a little bit into Eastern Europe, but you have, um, uh, some of the new world as well for like colonies and some piracy oh, okay. that can happen there as well. But it's kind of a minor part of it. It's, crazy historical um but it's also veers off into you know diplomacy and and crazy ways people can Hmm. upset things so i just want to clarify something so the game took 12 hours 12 hours there are six people six people and each and you played four turns four turns so half the game i mean it was the full game it was the full game because somebody did win but mostly probably because in that last hour or so a couple people were like Okay, I see what the Protestants uh, are doing, but we'll just let them go. Guilty. Uh, yep. Now, with that being said, <laughs> so you you, cannot, end, you you sort of allowed it to end. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually, we could have we could have prolonged it. Let's just say it may it may have still ended the same way, but there were ways people could. have I don't prolonged know. France it. could have like snuck out a win in there. Like, yeah, well, France almost did until everybody caught on and then basically stopped France. Yeah, we all stopped France and then let but the Protestants then, win. We're like, yeah. hey, we stopped France, but this has gone on too so long. We're too right, tired the Protestants to stop the Yeah, poor Nick just like suffered from the fact that not people me. were still energized. But not, not you, Nick, but other Nick. I yeah. gave uh, the Protestants credit because she brought these wonderful like cabbage rolls with okay, yeah. stuff with meat for so everybody. So just to take a like, moment. Halfway through, we all got to eat. Yeah, this was, was so good. This was an elaborate <laughs> thing and Monica has wanted to play this for a while. For any of your listen- our listeners, Monica was the one who runs the, the gay board game meetup here in, in LA and she has wanted to play this game with people who would really commit to it for a long time. So we even had a pre-game for the game where we had to learn some of the like rules. Six hours. That was yeah. That was a few <laughs> hours to just play one round and, and learn how to play it. But part of it was everybody was to bring like food and items from their country they were representing for the game day. So uh, yeah, Monica made these like stuffed cabbage things. They were really were, good though. Oh my god, huh. it was delicious. So the good news is we didn't have to take necessarily a dinner break. We had food right here while we were doing it, and it was just it was quite the event. You played for twelve hours. How did you not need more than one meal? <laughs> well, there were snacks. I mean, everybody had snacks. <laughs> there was, all yeah, throughout. there was cheese and grapes. I've played games for 12 hours, but not one game for 12 hours. <laughs> it feels you, like many games So you together. haven't played Twilight Imperium either, then? <laughs> no, I haven't. Well, and that's what this this felt like the advanced version of Twilight Imperium, I've got to tell you. <laughs> and I'm actually playing a version of this online, um, which takes obviously more than 12 hours, but you don't have to have as much of a time commitment because it's spread out over the right. course of like a year. And so we're in turn two and I started, <laughs> I want to say like two months ago. When oh my we started gosh. in 2015. <laughs> Board Game Geek was created and this game started. All right. So Matt, you had to have played something a little simpler than that. 
Uh, yes, I got to play one of my favorite games, uh, Glass Road. So this is a game that takes place during the Glass Road and wherever it was. Um, <laughs> clearly, you, know, you it's would very, think with all of thematic. these, with all of um, these like historical games we play, we would learn something. You would think. I know you think. Uh, but so the the really interesting thing with Glass Road Wait, is what was the Glass Road? The Glass Road is like it's sort of like the Silk Road, but for glass. Yeah, where they like get the stuff they need and then they make glass. This. I don't know. There's probably like info this, in the rule book is, or something. This is the blank stare that I'm giving at Matt at it this wonderful such a blank historical stare. Let's talk about the game because that's the fun part. <laughs> um, not that I don't like history, but if I do, if I do read about history, I don't read about the Glass Road. <laughs> uh, so uh, this game is really interesting. It has the resources that you get in the game are on these dials. Uh, and the way the dials are laid out is you need certain resources to make glass and certain resources to make brick. Uh, when you gain the resources, you sort of move them forward on that dial. And then when you have each of the resources you need to make to make glass, which for glass you need like sand and water and food and coal and wood. So you need all of these things to make glass. Once you have them, then the dial sort of automatically shifts forward. You scoot it forward and now you, and it it basically causes you to lose one of each of those resources and to gain one glass. Um, And so that's sort of the mechanic of the game is you're, you're basically trying to figure out how to get these different resources so that you can generate your glass and your brick. And then you're spending those to create buildings, trying to earn points. Uh, Who's the designer? uh, It's It's Uwe. It's Uwe, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, It's actually interesting because a lot of Uwe's is not his. It's very different for a Uwe game. Agricola, Caverna, all of the farming games about farming. Mm. Um, Feast for Odin is his more recent one. Patchwork. Patchwork. Uh, What's the the most recent forest lawn? What is it? The most recent forest lawn? Forest. Cottage Garden, Cottage Garden? which I is also know. just passport, patchwork. I don't know. Yeah, basically. He's, he's, yeah. But anyway, he, he does all the Euro worker placement games. Uh, Glass Road is not a worker placement game. It's actually sort of an action selection. Uh, everyone has 15 character cards, the same 15 character cards. And at the, each round, you choose five of them, and then you set them aside and you play them one at a time. But when you play your character, if other people picked the same character... They can swoop in and steal like half of your character's power. So it's all about picking some cards that you think nobody else will pick and other cards that you think other people will pick to try to get resources so you can build Is there uh, a lot buildings. of action paralysis in that game? That sounds like there, a lot of choices just AP. in picking. There can be some AP in it. That's but for sure. I, I gotta say, I haven't played it forever. Until you just mentioned it now, I'd forgotten that I'd played it before. I was fascinated, I think, by those dials and the card choices. I didn't like the other look of the game, the like mm. the, the oh, forest. Oh, so charming. Yeah, it's a lot of trees. And oh, all, I which, think it's Which, which is, by the way, the glass cute. road is the Bavarian forest. There we go. The pathway that this is commemorating the pathway for glass. The idea, that. though, that you're having to kind of like play mind games to figure out what everybody else is picking reminds me of like um uh which the the, it was two years ago broom service oh Uh, oh, see i never played that you never played broom Mm -hmm. service oh it's cute it's fun yeah Yeah. i love that was my gen con experience i love mind games i love the like oh i'm picking something but you're picking something i think that's great you're gonna it's just so much fun to find out uh and i played with two people who had never played before um with uh with nico and with ducky uh and they both loved it they were they immediately wanted to play again oh well Uh, did you 
No, it was oh. like one in the morning. <laughs> Quitter. But I wanted to play again at one in the morning, so it was a lot of fun. There's something really uh, charming about that game and the weird, yeah. the weird dial, especially. And it plays pretty quick. It's only four rounds, and it plays like an hour, mm. hour and a half, which is nice. So I was, I was going to ask. I heard four rounds can take twelve hours somewhere. Yes, yeah. so. Different. That's scale why it was here. one in the morning. Very different. Start at eight a.m. <laughs> Alrighty, so I think that that wraps up what we've been playing. Let's get to the main agenda, uh, and let's talk about the Oracle of Delphi. Uh, so this is a pretty new game by TMG. Uh, the designer is uh, Stefan Feld, and it's a little bit different from a lot of his games. Uh, but it has a lot. Uh, to me, it has similar feel, feeling. Mm-hmm. It's not. But but different. Like his yeah. games typically are point salad games. Yes, total point salad. This and, is a race salad and game. For, exactly. <laughs> so race salad. For oh. folks who don't know, the the term point salad salad means you can get points in a game for doing all kinds of crazy different things. You just kind of throw everything in the kitchen you're sink salad in, and, and you're you making can a salad. Add some lettuce and some cucumber and whatever you want. Uh, so uh, was that an Italian accent? It was that almost you were an Italian accent. Uh, no, no, I was no. not going to call it out. No, no, like, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. Like, okay, Mario, go for it. Uh, Mario. So, <laughs> back to Oracle of Delphi. Uh, so, uh, in this game, you play Greek people. Um, <laughs> Zeus has given you a quest. Uh, you need to go do 12 chores for him. Uh, and whoever finishes their chores first and comes back to Zeus uh, wins. I'm doing chores? I think it should be, <laughs> it should be labors. It's like based a good off of child. Her- it's, like it's, the- it's based off of Hercules' 12 labors. Okay, no, no, I cannot allow that to go just okay. as is. It may be 12 things that you're doing related to okay, God. it's not literally 12. But it is it, not the labors of Hercules. Don't get been, people to do You have to kill monsters. Yes. yes. So you've got to kill you monsters. You have to go to temples. I mean, one of his labors was cleaning the stables. You have to move One of them was stealing horses. That's kind of it. So there's four things that you're doing, and each of them you have to do sort of three three times so you have to um build monuments you have to deliver offerings to temples you have to pick up statues and build them on there's little statue spots and then you have to defeat monsters so um there's three of each of those things that you've got to do uh but what's really interesting about it is everybody can do anything in whatever order they want and um Let's talk about the board and the components of the game, because that actually, I think, is a big part of how to play. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a race game, so you're trying to do those things before your opponents can do the exact same things. But because of the way the board is laid out, there's multiple places in which you can do this stuff. Um, the board is, is entirely modular, so you can set it up however you want uh, before each game, which I personally love. Mm-hmm. So no two games are ever the same if you don't want them to be. Um, you know the 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 pieces basically the way they hook up you you then randomize where like the temples are or the monsters are or the offerings are or where you need mm-hmm. to go to drop stuff off so it totally changes the gameplay from from game to game and it's also different depending on how many players is it right no, no, that stays the same. Okay, because um, I remember you having to reference a lot of things, things in the board. But the number of things changes. Uh, changes. Yeah. So the board, lay, like the the places that you move through is the same, but there might only be eight monsters out as opposed to you know tw- right. 10 or 12. So it's different enough that you should probably follow through the instructions each time you set up the board just to make sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the setup instructions mm-hmm. are pretty lengthy, and it is a little fiddly in that respect. Yeah. But, but the instructions do a very good job of kind of walking you through how many pieces of each type should be out? How do you kind of disperse them randomly about the board? What's cool. what's cool is like when we say modular board, 
We mean like modular board. A lot of games they're like, oh, we have a modular board. There's like you know six things, and you know you you they could be in any order, right? This game, the pieces are all different shapes and sizes, so it's not like one size of. There's like all sorts of different shapes and sizes of pieces. There can be holes in the board, yeah, and that's okay. That's cool. And so the the order of it is like it's. We very very modular. You actually, for me at least, I like when there's holes in the board because uh-huh. one, it makes it a more difficult track to kind of move around. But there are uh, individual player powers that take advantage of the fact that there are holes in the mm-hmm. board. And in fact, some of the pieces are circular, like they they create a hole in the board. There's no way to get around it. Right. So let's talk about that then. So each player gets a different boat sort of at the beginning of the game which has a player power on it and they're all completely different uh what are some of the player powers that people had was it how much you can hold to doesn't have the as yeah there was mm-hmm. the one and it's only like one or two that boats, have the additional spots the boats normally can only hold two items yeah. one offering one statue two offerings whatever it might be it's just so valuable to have that which extra spot having the extra space is very valuable oh my gosh. so that's one kind of variable player power yeah. um the way the move mechanic works, which I'm going to talk about that a little bit because it matters for the for the mm-hmm. play, for some of the player powers, is everybody rolls dice at the um, kind of basically the end of your turn, mm-hmm. and depending upon what colors are shown, you use those dice on a color wheel to either move to a space that matches the color, to load an offering that matches the color, to unload an offering that matches the color, to fight a monster that matches that color. But if for some reason you don't like the colors that are showing, you could spend what we call Zeus zaps, but I think they're like favor tokens or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's favor. They, they look I like coined just, that term. They just look like lightning bolts coming down from Zeus to zap you. Anyway, oh you can spend those to change the color of your dice to then kind of do what you want. Problem is, is that normally those favor tokens can only be spent in a clockwise motion. Well, one of the uh, player powers allows them to be spent in either clockwise or counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. That was mine That w- when we played. I think actually both times that we played, I think I had that power. I love it. I think it's totally, totally versatile. I love it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different powers, and I, they're all exciting. One, My power that I had was I get two extra movement every time I move, which is just oh, that's it's super, super easy for me to get my boat around. The map is mostly water. It's like you're, you're sailing your boat around the Mediterranean, I assume. Which makes uh, sense for Greece. Yeah. yeah, and then you're picking things up and dropping them off and stuff like that. So uh, I think the, the powers are all really different and interesting. One of them is like it relates to the gods and gaining favor from the gods, which is really fun. Uh, other ones will give you extra storage. Or Kevin, I think you started with a resource. Yeah, you started with one of the offerings already in your boat. So useful, I gotta say, because because it is a race around the board game. Anything that cuts back on that it just makes it feel so special. Uh, but let's talk more about the dice mechanic. Larry sort of got into it a little bit, um, but this game is kind of interesting in that the dice don't determine sort of they don't determine which types of actions you can do you can always do any action with any die but everything in the game from the spaces on the board to the temple offerings to the monsters um to the statues they're all color to the coded gods themselves. to the gods yeah the, everything is color coded and each die can only be used to uh, to do a thing of the corresponding color so if i want to move to a certain space in the ocean if it's a blue space, I need to spend a blue die to move there. Uh, if I want to pick up a statue, if I want to pick up a black statue, I need to spend a black die. And so the six faces of the die are six different colors. Because this game involves so much color, I, I, I think there's a risk of there being problems for folks who are colorblind. I know that um, the dice all have symbols on them as well to try mm-hmm. and help with that. 
But the monsters, for example, don't have those symbols. The, the offering cubes don't mm-hmm. have those symbols. The statues don't have those symbols. So if if you are colorblind, there may be some kind of issue. It, it relies heavy on that. color. Yes. You, yes. you need to be able to distinguish the colors. I am not sure if they made this game colorblind friendly in terms of the colors, um, that... the colors themselves. No. But I don't think they are because there's uh, red and there's green. Yeah. Well, and the red, so... even just for me, the red and the pink look far too Ugh. similar. Yeah, also... that, that's a quibble that I definitely have. Blue and orange also, right? Yeah. The yellow, the... I think. Is it? I think yellow and orange. Is yellow. It? There's no orange. Okay. I think. No, it's just on the box cover. You can see the colors oh, okay, very is. clearly, mm-hmm. but because yes. of just printing, I think, and all, they yeah. get to be a little muddy when you see red and pink to are the definitely. Point. Yeah, red and pink probably are closer. They, that, I don't know why the, the pink isn't like orange or something because that would be better. Purple or purple or white. <laughs> so, uh, but the colors allow you to do basically everything in the game, mm-hmm. and it's nice because. Even if you roll colors that you can't use, you can always kind of waste or kind of spend the die to get two Zeus zaps or to use them to kind of gain favor with a specific god. Because if you move the god on your player board up the track to the top, you can then activate their kind of special power. Each of the six gods, which are allocated to one of the the six colors in the game, do different things. For Mm -hmm. example, Zeus will let you move anywhere on the board. Just you spend him, you can move anywhere. That's Poseidon. Um, oh, yeah, Poseidon, Poseidon, whatever. Because it's the water. The water <laughs> yes, takes yes, you. Yes, yes. Zeus and doesn't actually... Zeus isn't in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Zeus gives he you the, gives the, the crown. He gave, you, he gave yeah. you chores. Okay. But then like Ares or whatever is like the war god, right? So he's red or something. Let's you and fight you get and there, kill a monster fight. automatically. Yeah. So, so they're themed to, in theory, the, the powers of the gods. I think Ish. I think the god <laughs> the way that gods work I think is really interesting because uh, the, there's basically on your board every time you sort of gain the power of a god you move them up on these little clouds until they get to the top of the clouds and there's a little seat where they sit on you can only use their power when they're at the top and then they go back below and the very bottom of the board there's like this dark stormy cloud um, but the way it works is at the end of each player's turn when they roll their dice whatever colors show up if you have gods that are above the stormy cloud then you can move up one of your gods that corresponds to the color so it's sort of like the more gods that you sort of invest in getting up above the clouds the more opportunity you have for getting free advancements on other players turns yeah on and other think, players turns yes, right? yes. that's clear it's um, when everybody rolls you move up and i think that that creates a lot an interesting decision making element in the game of when it's your turn you only have three dice to spend and how many of them do you you know do you spend it to go do your actions or do you spend it to boost up those gods so that you can start getting free bonus actions well a similar interesting decision making point is at the end of every turn you're attacked by titans and Mm -hmm. so in addition to running around the board you also have to focus on um, dealing with wounds that might come upon you from these titans Mm -hmm. and and balancing them so you don't have three of the same color because if you have three of the same color you basically get knocked out and have to kind of spend the turn healing from your wounds Mm -hmm. or if you have i think it's six of them six total total you have to spend the turn kind of healing from those wounds so yeah and that that brings up the other element which is that not only are you doing different you're doing these 12 tasks but you're not just completing them each task you complete gets you a reward so part of building the strategy in this game is deciding which order do I want to do the tasks in. And this is one of those games where, like, 
if I do task A, I get this reward, which helps me for this other task. But if I did that task first, I'd get this other thing. And so... Or it might put me on the other side of the board where I don't want to be. Mm -hmm. Or I might be moving towards it and Nick is going for it as well. And then it's a race to see who can pick up that offering first. Mm -hmm. That's actually... There's a lot of... I feel like there is a good amount of interaction in terms of competing over things in this game because you're planning out your route for where to go. Right. It's, it's very important to look ahead a few turns. Even though you don't know what you're going to roll, you need to be thinking, like, when I go to drop off this statue, I'm probably also going to want to do to drop off an offering over at this other place because they're kind of nearby and preparing for that. Because if you don't, you're going to end up wasting a lot of time in a race game running back and forth across the board, which will not work out well for you. Yeah, this is definitely a race game, the kind that I prefer, which is it's not necessarily everybody doing the same thing, but you are very invested in what everybody is doing because Mm -hmm. you have to watch. Because to that point, Nick, like somebody's going to undercut you if you're not paying attention to where they're also going. So your plans that you make have got to really involve everybody and what their choices are. This this game was um, uh, released or or, or produced by, by TMG, Tasty Minstrel Games, and they generally, I feel, put out quality games with quality components. Mm-hmm. I think the components in this game, the wooden pieces, the wooden meeples, are are fantastic. I love them. Um, I know some of the monster tiles have stickers on them, and not everybody likes stickers in games. And I know it, sometimes people <laughs> kind of really get turned off by stickers. But for me, the stickers here work great. I love them. I, you know, this, the... The artwork of the gods on the stickers, the artwork of the monsters on the stickers. I just, I like it. I like it really works. Thing. I got to say, all the components are really high yeah. quality, I think. I think the stickers give it a lot more personality. I agree. Because you sort of have this decision with components where if you do punch board, right, it's sort of thinner. It's not as meaty, but you can have the art. Whereas if you do wood, it's like a nice chunky tile, but you usually don't have any art on it. There's, so. there's it elevates the feel of the game for me whenever mm-hmm. there's wooden components. I mean, I think we talked about this previously with Gaia Project where uh, um, the the wooden components for Terra Mystica for me elevate the game in a way that doesn't happen with the plastic components in Gaia Project. Yeah, let's not revisit that because I don't get that at all. <laughs> I, I agree with Larry on that one. I'm on, I'm on the Larry train with that one, I think it was. Um, Would you, what if the Kingdom Death Monster just had um, wooden blocks? Would that be better? <laughs> well, if Rosando painted them as beautifully as he paints these plastic pieces, yes. He, he could, um, for the record. Moving on. <laughs> uh, I think what's interesting with this as a racing game is that even though it is a race, a lot of racing games, it's very linear, right? Mm-hmm. Who's farther ahead? Who's further behind? This game, it's like we all have to do these things, but we're doing them in totally whatever order we want. Um, and you can see, like, oh, this person's completed more of their tasks than somebody else. But it's sort of like you still have a chance because it's not just like, oh, I need to catch up. It's like, oh, if I plan out a smart route or maybe I grab the thing that they need for their last thing or something like that, that you can then jump ahead of them. Well, it can also be deceiving. Like, you might have completed three things that are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. But I started by going through the thing far away, knowing that when I came back, right. I was going to hit three things. And and so it just may appear as though you're ahead, but w- in truth, I am. I would actually disagree, though, that it's totally not, like, everybody can do whatever they want. There are things, some of the some of the tasks are literally the same, where, you know, all of us have to drop off a green statue, or all of us have to bring, like, a red offering to wherever. Mm-hmm. And that does mean that you have to 
play with that in mind and you want to be the one to do those things in an ideal way first usually and that actually tripped me up quite a bit in our game where i didn't do those things as i didn't kind of realize we were all doing the same thing and that really hurt me later in Mm -hmm. the game because i had to kind of do suboptimal routes to accomplish these tasks yeah i mean to your point nick because there's only for like in a three-player game there's only three statues of a particular color if two people pick the kind of good statues, you're going to get stuck with the bad one that's got the longer route. Mm-hmm. So you need to make sure that you then get the good routes for the other things that might be right. out on the board that there's a limited number of as well. You know, yeah, so choices. That's choices. a lot of what you. Yeah, that's a lot of what you have to plan around. And it's, well, it's kind of interesting because each game there's you know the the task tiles or whatever you want to call them that you have those change so you sort of randomize like which colors of monsters and which colors of offerings do we have to get but everyone has the same ones for that game um so we are competing over certain monsters or offerings or statues what do you think of the weight of this game is this a game that's suitable for people brand new to kind of board gaming is this more of a kind of a complex game for experienced gamers what do you think um i think that i think this is I think it's a light to medium game. Eh, not light. It's a medium weight game. Uh, it's The complexity is not in the actual, like, here's how to play or here's how it works. The complexity is in this, like, matching up. There's a lot of, like, matching up the colors with the dice and planning out, oh, if I use this, you know, if I use this blue die to go to move to this space, well, then I can't use that blue die to pick up that blue statue. And now I've got to plan something else out. Uh, so I think that... The planning is where it gets complicated, uh, but the actual basic rules are not too too tough to learn. Yeah, I would I would definitely not say that it was a light game. I mean, in in my mind, like a light game is something that anyone can kind of play. Right. It doesn't. There's not too much involvement. This game for me was incredibly challenging. Now I'm not colorblind, and I could not for the life of me keep all these colors straight. Um, it was it was color, color overload in that. There were mm-hmm. everything had to care about a color except when it didn't, and that that threw me off even more than when I did have to care about a color. <laughs> was when okay, this statue can be any you know this task I can do with any color statue, but the other two I do have to care. So I'd be planning out my turn, be like, okay, and I have to do a statue and I have to grab this, but I've already done my free statue. I need to really only care about green and blue, and mm-hmm. so now this red statue is worthless to me. And it, it, it was too many different things in terms of like keeping track of what I could do at any one point and trying to plan out ahead. And I'm like, I'm used to like very complex board states and magic or keeping track of a ton of numbers and terraforming Mars and planning, you know, that I'm going to play this card in three turns or whatever. And I, I don't know what it is, but I could not keep these things straight in my head. And I, so like it would, I would push back that it could ever be considered a light game for that reason only just because there is so much to keep track of in terms of color. I mean, now that you're mentioning it, I think one thing that one thing that is really interesting is that, or that actually makes it hard, is that all of the stuff is there, whether you need it or not. Yes. Um, you only need two colors of monsters, but all six colors are out there, um, and that's because you can get one of them as like a wild card. But that it, it makes it hard because in most right. games, it's like if you go somewhere and do something, you can expect that the thing that you're going to do is going to help you. Every Not single task, game. every single variation of a task, I did something I couldn't <laughs> use 
to count for the task because <laughs> I had already used the wild up. Every single Wait, you did all thing. the wilds first? Uh, because Well, because Larry and Matt ate up all the colors near us because I acted last. It really it was, was just, all, all three of them that he did it. Oh. I, was, I was so frustrated by the end of this game that like, I was like, I was like snapped at Matt at one point because he tried to tell me like how, like what I should do. I was like, I've got it, Matt. It's fine. Oh, <laughs> it's <no>. fine. <laughs> A lot of people get turned off by the fact that dice are involved in a game. They don't like randomness in a game. Mm-hmm. What do you think the level of randomness is here with Oracle Delphi? Because each of your turns is dependent upon what you roll on the dice. I mean, if you always need pink to move somewhere, but you're constantly rolling green, you know, how much does that hurt you in the game? Well, at the end of the day, you can just spend your Zeus zaps and it's not... Or, or use a die that you can't use anyway to go get more Zeus zaps so you don't have this. Mm-hmm. I think that there was actually, there is randomness in it. What pops up is going to determine things, but it gives you a lot of ability to influence that, which mitigates that. You never feel like, you know, it's not like you get stuck in jail in Monopoly and you have to roll doubles to get out or something, like, but and you, you just don't. You are less efficient, though. And, and, sure. and will that, does that make you always feel like, ugh, I'm wasting dice for stuff, whereas someone else is just able to kind of roll with their engine? If, I if mean, the, true. I mean, I think you're right. The randomness, there's luck involved, and some people can get luckier than others in the game. I didn't find it frustrating, though, for me, mm-hmm. because I love the idea of what's going to happen if I roll these dice. Yeah. That that magic, to me, is worth it. And it almost feels like praying to the gods just a little <laughs> bit in this game of like, please, yeah. you know, this god, I need your color come to, come to me, help me. Well, I think, I think to your point, Nick, there's a lot of other ways to mitigate right. the, the stuff, too, other than the Zeus zaps. Like when you defeat yeah. a monster you get a benefit. So you might actually get additional Zeus zaps when you roll certain dice colors. Did you or... never defeat a monster? I don't think I ever <laughs> defeated a I think I did, and it wasn't a color. Because like, I think all you have to defeat certain oh, colors yeah. of each you of did. those. So I went and killed a monster with Ares, and I was like, okay, I did this stupid thing. And I looked at it like, I can't even do it. I don't care. I did it anyway. I just wanted to kill oh it. Oh, my God. I, I, yeah, I, the, the thing is, there is a lot of way to, ways to mitigate the luck. And I think any game that has dice rolling if you roll a lot of dice which you do in this game then over time on average that is going to mitigate itself uh and the other thing this game has is the oracle cards which is a really nice way where once per turn you can spend well anytime you can spend a die to draw an oracle card which is basically a card that has a color die on it and it pretty much just turns your die into some random other color uh and you can do that with as many dice as you want and you sort of get these oracle cards that you can then save and use you can only use one of them per turn so it's sort of like a fourth action you can do on the turn but if you're ever stuck and you're like i don't have any zeus saps you can just be like well Maybe I'll get the right color that I need. Let me draw an oracle card, and so. And then, even if you don't, you can save it for a later turn to mm-hmm. guarantee that color, exactly. or to move you closer to a color you need for the zoo steps. I'd also just point out, like at least for me, it was never frustrating at that. Um, like I felt like other people were rolling better or anything because there's so much. There's enough to pay attention to that you're not and you're kind of invested in what they roll based on like for mm-hmm. your gods you never really notice whether they're like getting super lucky or not because like there's so many other things to pay attention to that it's just all random and who cares i think that's why i'm not frustrated yeah, by exactly. it because like i'm not focused like it's a race we were joking earlier about it it's a mad 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 world that it feels like everybody is like just oh it totally is running around oh, just going crazy, crazy ways. totally yeah oh. trying to find the money buried uh-huh. in the ground but like the idea of being frustrated like I am in certain other race games where I think the comparison of where how well everybody's doing is so like in your face Mm -hmm. this just feels more 
adventurous. If there was a way to say, like, everybody's yeah. going on adventures and we're all having our own experiences and who knows what they were doing over there because I can't pay attention to it. Like, I, I agree. Now. It's just fun to go do, like, to go on an adventure be like, I'm going to go over here and what do I want to do next? I like that open world feel of just like, I can do whatever I want. Uh, I don't think there's, I don't think you get that in a lot of games. No, there is a sense, like, of, yeah, you can make poor choices, but but do, you know, <laughs> but you can you go can where you want to. defeat the wrong colored monsters, see? You can pick up the wrong colored cubes and statues that don't help you. <laughs> you could. can do it all, Nick. I, I <laughs> do all of those things. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> so it sounds like you guys had a good game. I, just for everybody, I did not play the same game they're talking about. I've played this game before, but not the same uh, version that they played. So, I mean, we've all... Well, we the three of us have played it a few times at least. Mm-hmm. What, what does everybody think of the depth of this game? Like, how, how replayable is it going to be? And how much does it make you think when you're playing? Well, for me, I love mythology in general. Like, I even took a college course in mythology so much. I was like, I love this. All this storytelling. So for me, it gets a it gets a little bit of a plus from that because I just love anything about the gods and all that fun stuff. Do I feel like the mechanics really relate to any of that? Not really, but I still love being in the world of the of the Greek gods. Um, so that mixed with the fun mechanic of just like the the weird board, the the flying all over the place, trying to deliver things. There's just so many things about it. The dice, the gods, track, all of that stuff just really works for me. So. I think there's a lot going on in it, but it's all little things in a way. And I think it all adds up to a really great game. Yeah, I I agree with that. This game hits a lot of buttons for me. I mean, it's got the dice rolling aspect of it. It's got the puzzly aspect of it, of trying to order my actions and and pick kind of the best order to do them in. You know, do A to get B, to then get C sort of thing. Um, and you know it's got the Greek Roman mythology. How can you like go wrong with that? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> uh, and I think I think it is fair. Like Nick's criticism of it is that it, it can be sort of like a colored overwhelming colored thing uh in the sense that this sort of it's like it's like they took a game and like split it into six pieces and each piece is like a color and then just like scattered those pieces all over and it's like the same game but just split into six um so in the sense that can be a little bit overwhelming uh so I, I understand that where he's coming on from on that point. <laughs> I do find the game to feel it felt balanced for me the couple times we played where Everybody always seems, at least two people in the group, always seem to be like one turn away from getting to the end. And so somebody wins, but the other person was like right there. So Mm -hmm. it does feel like from a race point of view, it's It feels fair. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Awesome. So I think that that about wraps it up. Let's go ahead and talk about, uh, or let's give our opinion on the game. Um, So for for Oracle of Delphi, did you like it? Did you love it? Or would you pass on it? Let's start with Kevin. I... I love it. I actually, I, I got to say I love it. Um, and I remember the first time we played it, I was so into it. I actually went out and I purchased it um, right after that because I, I just thought it was a, a game I needed in my collection. Yeah, I, I agree with Kevin. I, I love this game. I don't think it gets the kind of attention that it really deserves from the community mm-hmm. at large. I think it's one of those sleeper games that people don't really talk about. But I think um, it's 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 really underrated. I think if, if more folks heard about it if more folks played it that it would probably be higher rated than what it currently is on bgg nick (laughs) (laughs) 
I would pass. Uh, this was not my favorite game, and it's really sad to me because I was a classics major in college. I love Greco-Roman mythology more than anything. I want to love this game so badly, but the actual color mechanics of it just killed it so much. And as we were even just talking about all the other mechanics, I was like, oh yeah, I really liked how they did that and that and that and that. And I, I can't imagine that a game where I was so frustrated, I would really enjoy it the second time. But it was, I was, I truly walked away from that game like I, I'm good, and it's okay. I don't have to love every game, of course, but uh, because it seems like everybody else really enjoys it. But it's not the game for me. What about you, Matt? I love it. I love Oracle of Delphi. Uh, I've played it a few times now, and it's just so much fun. I love that feeling of the freedom to be able to sort of go out and race to like in whatever way I want. I love variable player powers, and this game has that in both the boats that you start out with and then also different characters and abilities that you get uh, throughout the quests. Uh, so it's definitely a love for me. So that is Oracle of Delphi. We'll check that off our agenda. Yay! Uh, which brings us to our short segment. Uh, Kevin is going to lead us on a discussion about the pros of cons. It just, I love the title. The pros of cons. It just sounds... Mm-hmm. Okay. What, what does it mean? So Kevin? what does it mean? It, it's talking about the Khanate of Mongolia and their, their literary prose, right? Uh, that was exactly it. But Nailed it. Then at the last second, we decided to instead make it about conventions. Oh, I'm so sad. I want to talk Mongolian poetry. Well, well that'll I, have to be the next one. We're talking about professional con artists. Oh, well, we're doing that too. Oh. We're actually going to fit them all in in the next 10 minutes. But no, honestly, we are going to be discussing board game conventions. So um, in any kind of uh, smaller industry like the board game world, uh, the idea of conventions is such a great idea for the community to come, to come together mm-hmm. in person and share their love of, of whatever they're discussing. And these game conventions go back obviously very far. It's, this is such a community-driven um, industry to begin with. The whole idea of it is to yeah. get in place and play these games, even though you know apps and digital age is changing it to a degree. The idea of coming together and playing a game is still well, key. B- board games itself are very analog. Oh my and god, it's so analog! All about the the person to person experience, and I think conventions are a way to facilitate that in a larger scale than just your local community with your local friends. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, I mean, we're really lucky to have like a giant friend group, but a lot of people don't have a whole lot of friends who play games. So I hear it again and again. There's a couple like online mm-hmm. groups and people are like, I have nobody in the area to play with. What do I do? How do I find people? And yeah, we were very lucky being in a more major city, having a lot of friends who do this as well as groups and, and gatherings that happen. And frankly, just Monica setting up all this. Cra- these oh my God. Events. Like, right. That's the biggest <laughs> thing to have a meetup group that does this. And especially a gay-specific one is like even funnier that we have this niche group that can do that as well. It's just awesome. But not everybody has that. And so what the conventions do is they kind of call people together where in, in this industry, what's awesome about it is it's small enough that these conventions are this really neat mix of the consumers and the creators kind of all in one place. And mm-hmm. that doesn't happen in every industry. The comic industry does a little bit, some of the toy groups, you know, but like for this case to be able to go up to and talk to this person who designed the game you love and maybe go through a demo of that game is kind of unique. It's very unique. So we wanted yeah. to take a little bit of time to kind of talk about some things for maybe somebody who's never gone to a convention yet or maybe who goes to some conventions but not others. Some things to watch out for and, and maybe some point of view of behind the scenes. So first things first, you know, where do you find these conventions? Definitely, thank goodness we're in the internet age. And one of the best things to do is to do a search for areas that you're interested in checking it out. There are major conventions that you have to travel to, but there are a lot of local stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So the big the big conventions that 
a lot of the industry goes to are Origins, Gen Con, uh, BGG Con, Board Game Geek Con, and um, Spiel, yeah, internationally, or Essence, which is yeah. internationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just where are those? So um, uh, Gen Con is in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, BGG Con, I believe, is in Texas. It's in the airport at in Texas. the Dallas Fort Worth yeah. airport. Oh, that sounds Ugh. so sad. It's and depressing. actually really great because <laughs> well, you I mean, it's fly awesome. in. Well, yeah. It's there it's for the, now, but I think they are going to be moving. Yeah, but it's great because you fly in, you just go straight yeah. to the hotel. You don't have to ever leave the airport. You have to take a taxi anywhere. You know, it's it actually is really really nice. Well, that and, actually sounds really nice. Now that you're yeah. saying it. And then Origins, Origins of Ohio, right? Yeah, it's yes. moved around a lot, but it. Um, I think it's in Ohio now. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati, I think it is. Yes. Right? And Spiel is international, but in it's in Essen, Essen, yeah, Germany. Essen, Germany. So um, the, there are also the local conventions. Like, for example, Los Angeles has a local convention called Strategicon. San Francisco has one called Kublacon. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I yeah. don't mean to so we are going to talk about Mongolian. <laughs> See? Yeah. We got around to it eventually. Uh, so, you know, they're they're. All over. That's also, uh, honestly a good place to start for people. If you're like, oh, I don't know, conventions, like there's a local con near you probably no matter where you are. There's tons of local conventions. And even if they're smaller, it's a great way to get started and sort of see what a convention is like. But once you're ready to kind of dip your foot into one of the bigger cons, um, I suggest taking some time to figure out what it is that you want to get out of a con. Because each con has a different feel to it. It's mm-hmm. a different experience. They're geared at different things. Yeah. Um, and, and so doing some of that research beforehand is important. For example, BGG Con is very much about meeting new people and playing games. It's truly a 24-7, we're just going to play board games nonstop. Mm-hmm. And people go to BGG Con from areas where they don't have a game group with the expectation that I'm going to get my full <laughs> year's worth of board gaming played at this one convention. Oh, it would be happens. played out by the yeah. time it's, that is done. There, I mean, there's several things with BGG Con. It's, a, it's like the longest con. I yep. think it starts on like Wednesday. Yeah, yep. five days almost um, or so. Or yeah. most, most conventions go you know, either Thursday through Sunday or Friday, Friday through, through Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. So BGG but, Con starts on Wednesday. Yep. Uh, and the con is basically the biggest room in the con is the open gaming room, which is just this giant room with tons of tables. And there's a massive library of games and you basically just come and for five days straight you're just playing games uh, and it's it's held sort of right after uh, Essen every year which is when a lot of new games will come out so all the new games that came out in Gen Con and came out at Essen people are playing those at BGG Con over the, over the course of the week so if you end up going to BGG Con which I recommend folks do do not be afraid to just walk up to a random person who's setting up a game and saying, hey, I want to play that. Do mm-hmm. you have a spot open? Because I guarantee you they will say absolutely yeah. and will welcome you you know, right in. You know, no problem, no issue, no hesitation. Well, you found your people. Like yes. that's that's mm-hmm. it. That's, that's, that's the whole about. point of what a great convention does is it's other people who are like you who want to play games and will play it for 24 hours. But now <laughs> compare that to a convention like Gen Con where it's a opportunity for all the designers and publishers to really show off their new releases. Mm-hmm. There's a huge floor where they all set up booths and are just demoing games nonstop throughout the entire day. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people go to Gen Con for that experience. But then Gen Con also has a secondary component to it where there's events through the day, all kinds of random and crazy yeah. events that you wouldn't otherwise get to do. For example, there might be a mega game going on. Kevin and I have participated in that where it's not quite a board game, it's not quite a role-playing game, it's kind of an amalgam of the two that takes all day to play. 
you'd never find that kind of in your local community. And you play with like upwards 50, of 50 to 100 people. people yeah. Exactly. Right? You know, and so going to Gen Con and having the opportunity to do that, that's really the only place that, you know, Kevin and I would have the opportunity to do that. Gen Con a lot to me feels like um, San Diego Comic Con, if you've ever been to something like that, because it's go- almost bigger than the industry like is in itself and, and the fact that it's become so many different things. Gen Con, I think is the biggest, biggest convention in the United States. I yes. think for gaming, mm-hmm. it's like 50,000, 60,000 attendees somewhere around there. Yeah. I think last year. And so, and it sells out now the last year or so, I think they just had the 50th anniversary and they just sold out, but it's so big now that you can, you have to almost choose the experience you want to have. So you go there and you have to, you know, plan out your day a lot more than just show up like you might be able to do at a local convention and just play some games. Here there's some planning kind of involved. Um, there's decisions you have to make about are you playing games? Are you having some experiences? Are you going to go to the dealer floor and try and buy some things? Or what kind of mix of those items do you want to do? So how, Larry, how do you, you're kind of what the closest I know to like a professional planner of some of these things. How do you plan that? So let's talk about Gen Con because I think that's the one that needs the most planning. Mm -hmm. The first thing I'd say is it's okay not to plan your, your experience there. It is okay to just get a badge, show up, and just walk around the floor and just demo games. There will be things to do. There will be things yeah. to make do. Make sure to get a badge. Yes. you got to do that early. you got to get a badge. <laughs> yes. Do the badge. Yes. But, but assuming you get a badge, which means you're basically uh, paying for the entry Like, fee. get one now yeah. if you want to go this year. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, because it did sell out in advance last year. I mean, it was the 50th anniversary, but there were no Gen Con badges on the floor. I know that. So if, if you don't do any advance planning, just kind of want to go and experience... It, it's okay to go and walk through the floor. But if you want to try and see the other side, some of the events, some of the behind the scenes, or some of the more, um, the more unique events that you might see that you wouldn't otherwise get to see uh, locally, there is a, a catalog or a listing up that lists all the games, all the other events that are available, and you have to buy tickets for them. And it's kind of done in a lottery system. They... Uh, you kind of once they go on sale, you put in your wish list, and then it kind of gets sold. And so this is a little Hunger Gamesy, right? I it mean, can just, be. there are three like elements to Gen Con um, in preparation. There is in, around January, February is when the tickets go on, start going on sale. That's not as crazy, but you want to get them in advance. Then there's, I think it's February is the housing yeah. um, lottery, mm-hmm. and that's if you want to get if you're staying in a hotel and you want to be really close to the convention center where it takes place. Um, the hotels there are really hard to come by and it becomes very like first person in like and you get preference if you've been going to Gen Con a long time and you've you know gone through this you get uh, an earlier time to find a hotel than somebody else and people snap them up and then the prices are ridiculous it's it's craziness for the most part I would say expect to just Uber you yeah. know <laughs> expect to not be nearby and you might have to travel a little bit or find friends you know that, that maybe live mm-hmm. in the area would be great some people even do like daily trips down from as far away as Chicago or something like that you can you can make it uh, then the third grouping is what Larry's talking about now, which is the event um, tickets, which is May, April, May. Yeah, somewhere around there. So, so coming up soon. People who want to do events submit it to Gen Con. They mm-hmm. kind of review it and approve it. And the events can be all kinds of things. It could be how to make chain mail um, you know, out of, out of <laughs> metal rings to 
Werewolf Survivor, um, which Kevin and I participated in. I'm the winner. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, these are just things that, that I mean, it could be uh, boffer LARPs, you know, kind of crazy things. Or Excuse me? <laughs> we'll have to do a whole other segment. Boffer LARPs? They, they accused me earlier of saying standard, modern, and legacy, and that being gibberish. And what I just is heard boffer LARPs? LARPs? You've never heard it? Okay, so. I know what LARPs, LARPing is. Okay, all right. Is a type of LARPing? So, so for folks who don't know what a LARP is, a LARP is a live action role-playing game. Uh, and it's just like a normal role-playing game that you play around a table, except it's it's done with a larger group of people, and it's typically done um, in a kind of a bigger experience where you're actually acting out the character as opposed to narrating the experience. And in non-boffer LARP, uh, LARPs, <laughs> there usually are... <laughs> ways of settling kind of uh, combat challenges because you can't roll a dice when you're you know standing up you might have to do rock paper scissors or you spend a resource to kind of do something well in a boffer larp <laughs> everybody has weapons that are made out of foam lightning bolt Wait, lightning bolts yes exactly <laughs> or bags of um, you know like beans and things like that <laughs> and, and you've never seen option. this man and they, no. they then like beat each other up with these plastic weapons but or these how do you determine these who's winning so if I hit you in the arm you've now lost use of your arm oh. and so you on the honor system can't use your arm if I have a, a sack I mean, of it's, beans it's definitely honor system I throw it at you and say fireball and if I hit you in the chest you take some damage you know there's, I mean there are referees yeah. to a degree to help and there's, you know, the idea of an honor system on a lot of this. And, and it is, like, it's more physical. There's a little it's bit more skill. Sport. <laughs> well, it's closer to probably, like, like, a laser tag, or yeah. dodgeball type It's like a laser thing. tag, or, or dodgeball. paintball, a yeah. little paintball, bit. Paintball, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so being able to go to Gen Con, you might have an experience to do that that you might not otherwise have in your local community. And can we discuss my, my one thing? The first time I went to Gen Con, I got to experience the true dungeon, which for me was like awesome. Mm. Again, something I could never experience on my own. Basically, that was a, one of the ballrooms in one of the hotels that were attached to the convention. They turn into basically a, a a D&D experience you had cards that gave you powers from whatever you know if you were a cleric or a fighter or whatever and you went in with a team of up to like six or eight people and you would go into different rooms and there would be either puzzles or fighting you would have to do for each thing until you got huh. to the big bad guy and it was elaborate the puzzles are very elaborate like one like, I remember super elaborate you, we had these like suction like vacuum hoses and you had to hook them up to various like posts which were like trees and suck an acorn starting from one spot where you would enter it in and get it to go all the way through and if you got the hoses hooked up right it would work and if you didn't this is you had to start pre over. like the fad of escape rooms which they also right. now have at these things so for me this was like magical that somebody had gone through all this trouble to set this up and they churn people through it's like every five ten minutes and the new group starts behind you so you better have moved on to the next oh, room oh, like, oh, wow. like you have a certain amount of time in each room and if you don't finish it they're just like, like next yeah and then you're done and like out and then you take wounds and there would happen. always be like an elaborate thing like the one year there was like a giant dragon at the end that they had built that you had to like kind of get balls into its mouth or something and it's like super hard to do wow. and you got you got bonuses if you were like a, had a certain skill ridiculous but magical and an experience you can't have in your backyard unless you have a huge backyard and you have a lot of time mm-hmm. I don't know yeah so does it cost extra to do these true dungeons so a lot of the events at Gen Con there's a ticket price to them mm-hmm. so the true dungeon it's it's expensive and so when you're buying a badge and then adding this experience to it for folks who are on a budget that may be kind of out of your range um that said, though, I do think it's an experience that folks should try once. Um, you know, if you turn it into, you know, your family vacation for the year or something like that, if assuming that your spouse likes board gaming, who knows? Um, 
it's family it's, vacation of one uh, you know whatever <laughs> uh, it's 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 worth it it's a good experience i i think it's something that folks should try at least once it exposes you to a lot of different people in our community. It exposes you to a lot of different games and it exposes you to a lot of innovative and fun, um, uh, experiences, gaming experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have with be it role playing game, be it LARPing, be it escape rooms. Well, related to that, and there is so much more that we can talk about. Maybe we'll get to it if we can, but it's a great kind of segue to kind of, ask Matt your perspective on it because as a game designer you've been to many different conventions where you've been talking about a new game you've worked on and mm-hmm. so that's kind of a whole nother aspect of this like obviously there's demos and we talk about playing the games but maybe from your point of view Matt you can kind of talk about what your experience is and what you're trying to give to these people who are showing up at the convention yeah I mean I think conventions are really important for any designer and any game publishing company uh, because it gives you an like an opportunity to have access to all these people who are interested in games and it's really like a big opportunity to introduce people to what it is that you do. So uh, for me, it's going to conventions. It's getting a booth where basically I either I either buy a booth in the de- in the convention like exhibit hall, or I buy like a demo table, uh, and then I can put my game up for display. People come by and they get to try it out. So I mean, that's what you want. You want people to come by oh, and absolutely. Try it out. So mm-hmm. so folks who go to a convention, they shouldn't feel shy about walking up to a booth and saying, hey, I'd like to demo this game. Can you show it to me? Totally. That's what you're trying that's, to do. That's basically what, what, you know, what each of those little booths is for is, is for you to try out product. Obviously, there's going to be people selling product there too. Um, so usually you can buy games that you're trying out, but that's a big bonus with conventions is you get to try out new games that are just coming out or games that are maybe like just going to Kickstarter or have gone through Kickstarter and are going to be coming out. Uh, and so for me, that's a big opportunity is to show off new games, get people excited about them, um, you know, get new like orders for my games uh, and, and also get feedback. So mm-hmm. it's, and, it's and all those Speaking things. of feedback, there's even an event where new games that are still in the early playtesting phase like all take place in like a room and you go in there and you you get to sign up for like a game you want to try yes. out that's, that's great time for designers to get feedback mm-hmm. yeah on. there's i think you're talking about the first exposure playtest hall yeah uh yeah so this is this is basically designers who have new games that they're still working on in the prototype phase you can actually sign up and try those out so uh you know obviously some some of them are not going to be great but a lot of them can be really fun and different so but you can be like part of like the feedback that designer yeah. gets for that game. And I think that's that's the really the, the fun element of cons is that there's a lot of different things to do and it's sort of up to you what you want to get out of it, especially a big convention like Gen Con or Spiel is there's a lot of different things. And so if you like the idea of escape rooms or true dungeon, you know, you can do that. If you like mega games and social games, you can do that. If you do want to play all the hot new releases, you can do that. Uh, there's all sorts of different things that you can do with a con. And I think it's up to you to choose what best fits for you. I have to say, my first experience at Gen Con, I went a little overboard. Um, I was there with some friends, but I didn't see them for a large part of it because starting at around 9 or 10 o'clock at night in one of the you know hotels, they would start having werewolf games. And werewolf, for anybody who hasn't played, it's a social deduction game of you usually have about 13 to 16 people sit in a circle and you have a, kind of this discussion and vote people off, you know, basically. And and when you're done, you know, there's like one winner, either the werewolves win or the villagers win. So they would play that game, but it would basically go on 
and on and on. So like as people would die <laughs> off in that village, they would form a new village and start a new game. This would go on until about nine or ten the next morning. So I'd play from then. I would go back to the hotel, sleep for about 45 minutes, and get up and start doing demos and checking out the exhibit feel until I played Werewolf again the next night and then just do it. So I slept about three hours for that whole Gen Con total. But I got the most out of that experience. <laughs> so, so along those lines, there are some maybe uh, things that I would recommend to folks to maintain their health and sanity. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. One is not to do that. Get sleep. I mean, you. you I only you did that the first to. year. <laughs> you know, bring vitamins so that way you kind of keep your immune system up and avoid the the con crud, which is like what they call it. Everybody always seems to come home with a a cough or a flu because. They're up so much, you know, it weakens their immune system. And bring water, bring, bring water, snacks, you know. You know um, the, what was it called? The stuff you put on your hands. Lotion. Not lotion. The, the <laughs> hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer. Thank you, Nick. Um, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Exactly. Uh, you know, so bring snacks, you know, you know, bring food because you will be, you know, on your feet for most of the day walking around playing games, using your mind. You got to keep it fed. Got to keep it well uh, energized. So I, I do have a question, just because I'm curious. Larry and, and Kevin, you've both been to Gen Con a number of times at this point. Are there people that you basically see every year at Gen Con? Because for Magic, it's like I was I talked about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Where like I'm going to Seattle, and like I'm seeing a ton of people, people I haven't seen in you know a couple of years, people who I regularly see at these big tournaments. I'm curious if it's kind of similar with Gen Con. Yeah, um, Gen Con. There's a very strong contingent of gay and lesbian folks who go to Gen Con and. We have a group of, of folks who originated from the Chicago area, but now are kind of all over, who we only get to see at Gen Con. And we hang out mm-hmm. with them. It's great to see them again you know, every year. There's a broader um, LGBT event that takes place, I believe, typically on the Thursday or Friday there. And so I get to, to you know, meet and hang out and say hello to folks who I've met through that that I don't normally get to see, you know, because they don't live here in LA, they live in Florida or they mm-hmm. live in New York or, you know, whatever it might be. So it is an opportunity. I mean, in, in a weird way, it's almost like the spring break from, you know, college <laughs> oh, or the totally, board it's the, totally the nerd spring break. It yeah. is yeah. because there is a sense of like, everybody's coming from all these like places and, you know, everybody gets into the airport and you see all like yeah. on your flight in, you can tell all the people who are going there for Gen Con. It's just, there's an excitement yeah. that goes to it. And you do start to make con friends. Oh yeah. You know, where it's like, these are my friends that I made at the mm-hmm. con. And then it's more exciting to go back the next time. Cause now, you know, you get to play those play games with those people and see them again. And I ditched um, Gen Con a couple of years ago because of the, the laws they were passing in Indianapolis or Indiana in, in, yeah. in general that were kind of anti-gay. But then the good news is Gen Con sort of stuck up a little bit for it and said, mm-hmm. look, you know, we're a big part of your business and don't make us have to make decisions. And thank goodness some things changed and it was a little bit better. And I think Gen Con then upped the ante by, it was about two years ago or so, um, the Indianapolis uh, Gay and Lesbian Board Game Group started with these little badges that say, first it said, I think, you know, LGBT, you know, player or something to that effect. But then the last year or so they added Ally and there were so many people wearing Ally badges Mm -hmm. that just warmed my heart, I think, walking around that. Because it can be a very like male centric like straight male mm-hmm. kind of world especially with all the rpg yeah. stuff and all that goes on that it feels like it would not be welcoming um 
but I feel like Gen Con has done a really good job the last couple of years about changing that idea. I remember hearing about that, actually. That was really big news, and I'm very glad that uh, Gen Con stuck up for that. I'm curious, because it is often a very male-dominated world of just physical gaming in general, but um, are there certain things that they do for women to like in the same vein or like to try and encourage women gamers to come. Um, I, I know I've just read a lot in the last couple of years about how women gamers, especially in D and D have been kind of, uh, they've had a lot of negative experiences that they're now kind of sharing. There's, there's similar meetup groups, mm-hmm. um, kind of like they do for the LGBT group. There's women's groups there. There's, uh, other events specifically geared towards women, women designers, women um, writers, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. so yes, there is um, that sort of kind of open community there. I do think the industry suffers the same way, like the video game world, yep. where they still objectify women in yep. mm-hmm. the product itself. I think that's still a big problem. Um, I don't know that I saw them trying very hard to change that kind of aspect. Right. Um Maybe they're not quite there yet, but you know. <laughs> well, I mean, but for the, I mean, the convention obviously can't ban yeah. all games with the, the, yeah, the conventions can't do that. Yeah, right. right. But, that's the industry that has to work and, on that. And are there? And if there is a problem related to anything like that, are there are there staff that you would know to go to to talk about that? Mm-hmm. In a magic tournament, you'd go to you'd go grab a judge. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if it's similar. I mean, there represent like representation in gaming and. That's a that's a whole discussion. Well, I guess but that'll I'm be a different curious, episode. But there's the ex- a lot there's a lot to unpack there. But to the extent that you're there and there are other guests who, you know, are using um, slurs against you or sure. you know are making sexual advances towards a woman, there are you know folks there uh, who you can report that to, who mm-hmm. the convention will step in and kind of address that. That's good. You know, there 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 is a presence. I it's I think they make a they do a very good job of making clear that it's. Uh, a, a safe space, a tolerant space that they they do not condone and, and will not accept, you know, um, harassing behavior of any kind. I would say the one thing I noticed from Gen Con that just made me pause and think, especially this last year, um, and this is coming from a white male, is just how predominantly white mm-hmm. and mostly male it, it is. You look out mm-hmm. on a sea of people, and it's again, this is a, a middle America like con, so it's, you know, drawing from kind of maybe not as socially diverse a group as it would be if it was in either, you know, some international setting or on the coasts. But um, I did feel like, I is this an elitist kind of hobby? Is this something that culturally is being, you know, blocked out from other people? I don't know. We were just talking about how uh, Raw is now $60, you know, and there is obviously, right? there is a, there is definitely a class element to yes. that, right? Like, it's, a, it's, not ex- well, it's not cheap to go to these cons. It's not cheap necessarily to play all these games. Well, and just culturally, I don't know that a lot of diverse groups grow up playing board games. You know, it does seem like such an odd, archaic thing to do in a way now, too. Yeah. It's like not, mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit of a throwback that you could just see some hipsters wanting to pull out of the closet more so. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I mean, this is beyond just cons. This is a thing where, you know, this is something that game designers can address. This is something yep. that game publishers yep. really need to address. And some do a good job of it. And a lot, I think, don't really think about it. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of times end up not doing a great job about it. And that's, and that's where my, co- my questions were coming from. Not necessarily that, um, that one, are these things just totally not present? Because I think that they're, you know, any, any large group of people is probably going to have some elements of various isms. 
Um, but is the con- is the convention cognizant of that, and do they have certain med- like codes of conduct or staff in place yeah. that can help adjudicate and solve these problems? And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, and I think just because there have been other conventions in other industries like the comic industry, the cosplay industry, that have had issues mm-hmm. lately, and I think very public issues, mm-hmm. I think everybody's on alert in the best way possible, where everybody's you know now thinking, oh, we can't just open up a giant room and let everybody do whatever they want. I guess somebody has to pay attention. So, yeah, I feel I felt safe. I felt um, like there were allies there. I felt like it was a good experience. I felt like everybody was there bonding over love of games, Mm -hmm. which was great. All kinds of games, you know, that was what was special. So there we go. That is our discussion on some of the pros of cons. And obviously we brought up like a ton of other issues that we'll have to have other episodes on in the <laughs> future. So many discussions to have. But that's all we have time for for this week. But definitely please subscribe to The Game Agenda so you can catch our future episodes. You can find us on uh, the Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or Stitcher. So many other places. Wherever you find your podcast, you'll be able to find us. But subscribe and then it'll magically just show up on your phone or device. Uh, but you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter where we have those Kingdom Death Monster photos we got to put up there uh, or on uh, Facebook at The Game Agenda. I am Kevin. I'm Larry. I'm Nick. And I'm Matt. And that is The Game Agenda. Thanks Bye. for watching. Bye.